Turn to your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. All right. So let's stand together. I'll read verses uh, 1 to 9. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in his mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come, he might show a surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not that of yourselves, that is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. You may be seated. So to give a little bit of context to uh, Ephesians, in the first two chapters, we see Paul here is making a case for unity between the Jewish and the Gentile people. And we see that in chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. I'll read them quickly. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were that, that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you have formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in our ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into new man that establishes peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having to put to death the enmity. And then he came and preached in peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For though, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you can see there that both Gentiles and Jews are reconciled together in one body and have access in one spirit together. So now part of Paul's unity case that he's now making is in is our passage that lies right in the center. And here we see that he's talking about this unity where all people can't boast, neither Jew nor Gentile can boast that they were made themselves right with God. So today I split our verses into two categories. Verses one to three will be mankind's problem. And verses four to nine will be God's solution. So we'll start in verse one. So there's a few observations in one or two here I'd like to, to talk about and what it looks like to be dead in our sins. So in verse one, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And in verse two, he now fleshes that out. So there we see he, we were, they were walking according to the course of this world or according to the prince of power. In first John five, nine, we see that we know that the, according to the world, the prince of power is actually Satan. So in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are the, 
it says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil. So when they're walking according to the world, this is what they're lining their lives up with. Also in verse two, it says that they, um, they, uh, sorry, in verse three, uh, they lived in the lusts of their flesh, indulging in the desires of their flesh and of their mind. So we can see there that basically the purpose and direction of their life is driven by their fleshly lusts. And in 1 John 2.15, we see what that living out that desire means. So do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. These things are not from the Father, but it's from the world. So we can clearly see here that the people that Paul is talking about in verses 2 and 3 do not belong to God and are not living a life that reflects that. To further my point, in Galatians 5.16, it also talks about when we live in the flesh, it's actually opposite to the spirit. So we can clearly see that these people here are definitely not living a life for God. So now, despite people walking in opposition to God and living by their own desires and flesh, my question was, why does Paul describe them as dead in their sins? Like, why this, why this word dead? Well, Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. So that means that everyone who sins owes their life as a payment. The interesting thing is God actually set that price in Genesis chapter 2, 17, when he gave that command to Adam. He told Adam, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. That's the price of sinning. So we can see now that being dead in our sin, we owe that. So then the next question is, who among us in the world then has sinned? Well, Romans 3, 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 3, 10 also says, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And there is no one who does good. There is not even one. So no one has escaped this payment. Doesn't matter how many sins, the same, the price is still the same and it costs us our lives. So if the wages of our sin is death and we owe for our sins, then that means there's nothing you or I or anyone in the world can do except pay with our lives. There's no righteous acts. There's no rituals or sacrifices. There's no amount of prayer, reading your Bible, helping less fortunate, being a good person, or going to church. See, none of these things make you right with God because that doesn't cost, that's not the price of what it costs to sin. Hebrews chapter 10, 3 and 4, even it furthers this when it actually says that it's impossible 
for even the blood of goats and lambs during those sacrifices to take away your sins. So this actually starts to make sense now when Paul describes these people in uh, verse 1 as being dead in their sins. These people that are not right with God are walking dead people. They're basically people on death row. So this kind of makes a little bit of sense now when you see you have a guy that's scheduled for his lethal injection and everyone says there's a dead man walking. So it's to make sense. We see that. It's, he's never going to escape that death. And that's where mankind is sitting. And this problem, dead in our sins. But thankfully, God loves us so much, he has a solution. And we see God's solution, verses 4 to 9. So the first thing I want you to realize uh, or uh, see and, and notice in verse 4 is, is how it's written. So in there we see the results of God's great love for us is rich mercy. I'll read that really quickly. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us. So his great love translates a result in mercy to us. So what was his great love? Well, Romans 5, 8, I'll read that to you. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'm going to read that to you guys. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while yet we were sinners, Christ died for us. So this is God's great love for us. Not only does he demonstrate it, making his love action, it's towards us, it's towards another person. It's while yet we were sinners, so it's unconditional. And he died for us, makes it sacrificial. So we can see here that God's great love for us results in mercy because God's great love is Jesus on the cross. But again, Paul sticking to his language that he's been using, he doesn't quite word it like that. Instead, in verse 5, he says, And when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. So naturally... I ask, well, what does it mean to be alive? Well, Colossians 2 gives us some really good insight. It's the same author. There's very similar language. It's a perfect picture of what we're looking for. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, very similar wording, he made you alive together with him, and here's how he did it. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decree against us, which was hostile towards us, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
So being made alive now is having that previous set that made us a dead person walking free. It's been canceled out. It's been paid for. Christ's death cancels out our certificate of debt that we owe because of our sin. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, he actually says there that we've been bought with a price. Again, similar language as this purchase that's been happening with, with the blood of Jesus. Not only does God just save us from our sin here, but in our passage, he actually describes us in uh, verses 6 and 7 as being raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come, he might show us surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. And now verse 8 starts with the word for. So he's substantiating how we have access to being risen up and seated and being able to experience God's riches and grace by verse 8. So we can experience these things because by grace, you have been saved. So here we see grace, you've been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So saved by a gift from God called grace. Jesus' sacrificial death is God's grace. This undeserved favor towards us. We did nothing to deserve this. We actually owe. And I think one of the things that's great about this passage, it actually helps us define what God's grace is. See, because I've found through my 10 or so years of being a Christian and walking around in circles, the Christians tend to have a different language sometimes. Like we, call it, we call it Christianese, right? And I find God's grace is one of those. Like if someone says, hey, Don, just got to have faith, right? And it, and it sounds great, but it, it doesn't hold enough to really like do much for me, but it sounds really nice, right? And so same thing here, if they say, you know, Don, God's grace be upon you. It sounds wonderful, but what does it mean? See, in our passage here, we can actually see what God's grace is. God's grace is the sacrifice of Jesus that saves us. That's what God's grace is. Saves us from our sin debt. No deeds of our own, no merit, nothing that we did. It's a gift from God that saves us, and that's his grace. Undeserved favor. That also means that regardless of the offense or offenses to God, whether you've lied or murdered, they all cost the same price. And I remember when I first heard the gospel, for whatever reason, the first thing I remember saying was, I don't deserve this. I, I knew what I did hurt God. I knew, um, I felt the weight of that and I didn't think I deserved it. That was the first thing I said to Dexter, but that's 
that's the joy of trying to understand and what it means to live in the grace of God is to know that you don't know that you don't deserve it. And that's just how great his love is for us is that he would do that for us. That, and we don't. So although that God has given us this wonderful gift of grace, it still requires us to receive it. For example, if I bought everybody in, it, in the congregation here a gift and I laid it on the stage here and you walked away and left and you didn't take your gift, then you don't get my gift. So there's a part that you have to play. Although I purchased and got you a gift, if you don't receive that gift, you don't get it. So how do we receive God's gift? Well, verse 8 tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith. So what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? Well, many times in the Bible, faith, the word faith and belief are interchangeable. Very similar. Interchangeable. And I want to show you two verses that can really give us a strong picture of what it means to have faith in Jesus or believe in Jesus. Okay. First one, we know this very well. Okay. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We know this, we know this verse very well. But if you go a little further, you get a little bit of a dissection of this. John, oops. Sorry, I forgot that part. I'm going to read it to you. So if you go a little further, John 3.36, okay? So it's a very similar language. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Oh, that sounds really similar. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God. So we can see here that belief and obedience and obeying are interchangeable. They're the same. So according to God... To believe is to obey. It's not about intellectual knowledge of who God is and what he's done. It's an actual living out and making a choice that reflects the intellectual. We can see now with this understanding and when we go to John 6 and Jesus says a similar thing. This is after the 5,000 fed. He leaves them, walks across the water, and they chase after him, and they find him, and they want him to keep doing miracles. And he says, this is after when he says, um, you know, seek after the, the, the food that will be everlasting and you'll never thirst. And they, they, ask him, they ask him, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered them and said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent you. Again, you see how we interchange that? You obey the one who sent you. God's work is to believe in Jesus, living a life of obedience to what Jesus commands. That will reflect your belief or faith. So back to our passage in Ephesians. To summarize here.
Grace is the means in which you are saved. The means in which you are made righteous before God, having your sin debt wiped clean. Now, through faith in Jesus is how you receive this grace. So naturally, uh, next question that could be asked is what do you do after you receive God's grace? Well, I'll put um, a friend of mine on the spot because he was late coming in. Roger. Um, so I'll give you an example of what now we can do when we've received God's grace. So Roger, when you bought your first house and you had your mortgage, and someone came up to you and paid your entire mortgage for you right up front, how would you feel? What other description words would you feel? Perfect. Grateful. All right. That's what we're talking about. So the, the gratefulness that Roger can feel just from a earthly, tangible financial position, and that's not even a financial position that, like, he could actually pay that off in his life, and he would still feel grateful. He'd probably feel forever indebted to that person. Like, his whole life, he'd be so grateful to that. So now, take that same feeling, but apply it on a scale that's humongous. A debt that you can only pay with your life. See, God came with no conditions. You didn't do anything. You didn't have to ask nothing. He paid that for you. So gratitude for the love that was shown to us, that's how we live after we receive this grace. And God shows plenty of times in the Bible, he's a relational God. He wants to be reconciled to everyone in the world, so much so he initiated the reconciliation and sacrificed himself to do so. We see this in Colossians chapter 1. And although you were formerly alienated, hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds, that he was, has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. God doesn't want to just pay for your debt. He wants to reconcile the relationship between you and him. And he's done that. He initiated that. He did that through his death. And the Colossians is great here too, because he says, while you were alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, again, unconditional. He didn't wait for you to show interest. Jesus also says a similar thing relationally. When he talks to the disciples, he says, if you love me, you will do what I command. Again, He's not talking about just following his rules. He's saying in a relational term, if you love me. So what do we do when we, once we've received God's grace? Well, we live a life in relationship with God that reflects your love and your thankfulness for Jesus and what he's done to forgive your sin death. Remember, this love is shown through the obedience in your life to all that God commands. And now that you have this relationship with God, 
just like any relationship we have on earth, it takes time to learn things about that person, who they are, what they like, what they don't like, what the tendencies are. So how do we get to know people? Well, we spend time with them. Just like our earthly relationships, we need to spend time with God to learn about him, who he is. There's three ways I'm going to give you that you can spend time to learn more about who God is. Now, that doesn't mean it's the only ways. There's just three ways. Number one is prayer. Many times, Jesus left the disciples to pray to God. Feeding into his relationship. Seek counseling. Comfort. Two, the Bible. It's described as God's written word. The truth. Written to us. God's already spoken so many words in here. We can learn many things about how he interacts with people, how he deals with situations, or how he loves us. And thirdly, it's fellowship with other Christian brothers and sisters. See, each... Each fellow brother and sister and believer is a reflection of God's character and love. And we get to experience that when we share time with each other, share meals and have fun, talk about God. We get to experience what's God's love in action on earth right in front of us. And the better we get to know God, the better we can reflect his character and show other people in the world what God's love is. His love, a tremendous gift given to us. And we have a duty and a privilege to share that with other people. In hopes that one day we can all be united under God's kingdom. And with that, I think we should be excited. We should share the gospel and just keep loving others. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for what you've done for us in the world, and uh, thank you for the privilege to uh, be able to share that with people and the reminder of um, the duty we have to live a life that reflects our belief. Um, I pray now as we go home and reflect on our lives that um, whether it's with your word or other people, your spirit, Lord, I pray you can convict us in ways that we can uh, love you better and love other people better. Um, And uh, Yeah, I just pray you can expose those things lacking in our lives and um, just help us set aside selfishness and selfishness of time and and invest in other people and and the relationships that are right in front of us that maybe we're just um, putting on the background. I just pray these things in your holy name. Amen.